Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Friday. So glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and a crazy martini that you're really going to enjoy as a conservative, I think. And so, Jim, uh, let's get started. The convention season is over. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the second martini. Uh, But uh, for the good martini today, it's got a couple of different twists to it. If anything good has, has come in terms of the unrest in the streets this week, because it certainly hasn't stopped, that would be the good, really good thing. It's that apparently the Democrats, after three months, have finally gotten wind of this. And some might say, well, now they're going to claim that they were in favor of no riots in the first place and it's going to muddle the message. Or you can obviously make the case, like we did earlier this week, that the only reason this is coming up now is because they see the polls are souring on their lack of a response to this. Well, I think ultimately we want peace in the streets. So uh, if we can get there, that would be a good thing. Uh, The article that is kind of the basis for this is from The Atlantic. Of course, it's completely based on the writings of a guy who desperately wants uh, Joe Biden to win. And so it's essentially saying that Joe Biden needs to get back out in front of this, claiming that Biden has actually spoken out against the violence multiple times and forcefully in the past three months, which isn't exactly true. Uh, But he says Joe Biden needs to go to Kenosha have a moment with uh, the Blake family, and then uh, also have a moment with the Kenosha business owners whose livelihoods have been destroyed, and then he would have the high ground in this situation. Who knows if that uh, is going to happen? Who knows if that is going to work even if he did try that, given his lack of uh, commentary on this in the past couple of months? But the fact is, we're seeing a crossroads here with uh, how people are reacting to what's happening in the streets. First of all, if you watched uh, the aftermath of the Trump speech in the South Lawn of the White House last night, you saw that people leaving the White House grounds were accosted, uh, some bumped, some jostled, certainly shouted down and screamed at and berated. Uh, That is certainly not going to go well for the Democrats. That pretty much backs up uh, a lot of what Trump and Pence were saying over the past couple of days. And then there's also uh, different attitudes among Democrats on how to approach this. First of all, here is squad member Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. She's probably the least well-known, but uh, she's certainly vocal as well, saying everybody's got to keep taking it to the streets. Make the phone call, send the email, show up. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. And unfortunately, there's plenty to go around. And then... In stark contrast to that, here is Tennessee Democratic lawmaker John DeBerry Jr. This is actually from more than two weeks ago, talking about how this type of protest that we're seeing now is nothing like he and his father uh, were doing back in the 1960s. People got to wake up because this type of protest does no good at all. They're getting emboldened because we act like a bunch of punks, too frightened to stand up and protect our own stuff. You tell me that somebody got the right to tear down property that Tennessee taxpayers paid for? That American taxpayers paid for? And somebody has the right to destroy it, deface it, and tear it down? What kind of people have we become? That we can't protect our own stuff. Peaceful protest ends peacefully. Anarchy ends in chaos. And what we see happening right now, any of us with any common sense, any common sense whatsoever, know that what we see is not peaceful. And so, Jim, he says that this type of rhetoric on his part could cost him his seat 
it did cost him the primary. He's looking at running as an independent now, but he's obviously right. So uh, what do you make of where we are in this uh, back and forth over this issue, especially on the Democratic side? Yeah, I was kind of heartened to see that Atlantic essay um, because I think, first of all, and I also saw quite a few people reacting to it. Uh, I think, you know, George Packer wrote it. I think a lot of other prominent Democrats were thinking it. And by the way, I think it would be terrific if Joe Biden did as George Packer recommended. He went to Kenosha. He not just met with the families, but that he really put his heart into arguing people should not be rioting. They should not be looting. They should not be setting fires and arson. And they should not be assaulting people. That these have no place and they undermine the cause that they stand Biden has made, I would characterize like check the box statements along these lines in the last couple of days. Um, and when you, you, you say, where's Biden? You know, they'll, they'll point to this. Okay, fine. Yeah, it just hasn't really broken through now, has it? No, I think, again, the visuals of seeing Biden in these communities, um, I think would have a bigger deal. What, what Packer is saying is just kind of building upon what that New York Times article said earlier this week. By the way, for anyone who was wondering, John Garrity out in Wisconsin is not a relation of mine, as far as I know. Uh, but this is, you know, this, this is, it's reasonable. You know, the other thing is that Kenosha is kind of one of the swing districts in what's a pretty darn important swing state. And if, you know, lots of folks who had not been terribly enamored with Trump are looking at the response of the mayor and look at the response of the governor and saying, where are these guys? They just can't seem to keep the peace. They can't seem to keep order. People are losing their businesses and their livelihoods every single day. Well, that's, you know, they're probably a little less likely to get all enthused about Biden. They might say, huh, you know, maybe Trump's got a point because you know, there's been this argument of, oh, well, if you're, if you're complaining about this in Biden's America, it's happening in Trump's America. Yeah. Do you think if Trump was the mayor of Kenosha, things would be different? Do you think if he was the governor of, of Wisconsin, you think things would be different? The president doesn't run local law enforcement. The president does, you know, can only send the National Guard if the mayor consents. You get into really murky areas if the president says, I know you've said not to send them. I'm overruling you and sending them. You know, Democrats should be able to stand up and say, whatever else you think of Black Lives Matter, arson is bad. <laughs> all, that's all we're asking for. Arson's bad, okay? You know, that's really not, not, not expecting that much. And so the fact that Democrats are doing this, I think this does indicate whether you see it in the uh, particular poll numbers, whether you see it in uh, kind of anecdotal evidence, focus groups, for some reason, the mood amongst a bunch of Democrats has gotten very nervous about this, which is good news if you're, uh, if you're you know, rooting for Trump. It means obviously they're seeing something that makes them very nervous. But I think the bigger thing is like, it would be really nice to have two parties that could lock arms and have this one clear unified message. Ideally, that yes, we all want to see equal justice under the law. We want to see police uh, harassment and misconduct dealt with. We want to see it wiped out. But we also want to see people obeying the law. And we do not want people thinking that it's okay to commit violent acts and destroy other people's property because they're really mad about politics or they're really mad about something. Um, and you probably a really egregious example earlier this week in Minneapolis where it was a person committed suicide was erroneously interpreted as a police shooting and it ended up turning into uh, violence in downtown Minneapolis again. The question, though, is whether Biden speaking out now is going to accomplish anything, because, you know, theoretically, you were talking about this earlier in the week, you know, people who are ostensibly in some ways on the same side as you, will they listen to you? So if Biden goes out there and says, look, I know you're upset with this administration, but this has got to stop and it doesn't stop. 
Does that make him look even weaker and more feckless than he already has by saying virtually nothing? And the other thing I'm thinking is, okay, he had eight hours of primetime last week to talk about this, even in the slightest. And the entire party and his speech and Kamala Harris's speech said nothing about it. So at what point does he lose credibility by speaking out about it after the convention where it never came up and after three months where he barely mentioned it at all? So way back in 1992, Bill Clinton running for office, he pretty much had won the primary at this point. And he had what they called the sister soldier moment, right? Sister soldier had, was this uh, you know, hip hop or rap artist who had said something along the lines of, um, you know, if we, if black people shoot black people every day, why can't we just have one day where black people shoot white people? And Bill Clinton came out and said, this is wrong. And basically, you know, ripped into her uh, at a time, I think it was an event that, you know, Jesse Jackson was there and, this angered a decent number of, of Democrats who felt like, you know, we're not supposed to, it, it, somehow there's something morally wrong about criticizing anybody in the black community, no matter how outrageous the statement, you're not supposed to do this. And Bill Clinton was like, no, no, I need to indicate to people that what Sister Soldier is saying doesn't represent me, doesn't represent my values, and I think it's wrong. I need to reassure boring old white suburbanites that I stand with them when, the, when people start talking about, let's shoot white people for a day. I remember also in my, you know, long, long ago, it feels like a lifetime ago, talking to Bobby Jindal, and he talked about uh, taking over and the state of Louisiana and its reputation. And he basically, you know, they'd been ranked 50th in government ethics laws. It was the most lackadaisical environment you could about getting gifts if you served in the state legislature and things like that. And he basically said, look, if we're 50th and we pass a bill that takes us up to 45th, nobody's really going to change their minds about us. Everybody's going to say, oh, okay, made a little bit of improvement, no big deal. Businesses aren't going to come in. We're still going to have a reputation as having a state government. If you want to change people's perception of you, you got to make a big dramatic step, right? And that's why the state ended up passing the toughest legislation about disclosure of gifts and limiting gifts and all that kind of stuff. So it was one of those things where it was like, if you want to change the perception of you, you, have, you can't just make a half step. You got to make a big, bold statement to make people look up and say, whoa, well, okay, I did not expect that. Joe Biden offering a standard violence is wrong sentence in an otherwise sentence about how bad police violence is and how, uh, you know, this is happening too often in America and America's police, you know, he's made perfectly fine generic speeches in which, as I said, he just kind of checks that box. It's not going to do any good. If Joe Biden goes out and says, and you know, you see real anger in his voice, you see real outrage. Well, maybe this will move the numbers. And even if it doesn't change, even if the protests continue, even if the riots continue, even if arsenal, even if all the bad things continue, it will at least Biden will have been kind of inoculated himself on the issue of, is he okay with this? Or is he turning a blind eye to this or something? Um, the one other point in that Packer article is he acknowledges what you know, many conservatives have been saying. The rate of violent crime in just about every American, major American city has increased in the last three months. Now, this isn't direct, it's not like the, you, know, you have a protest and automatically people start shooting each other or stabbing each other. But when police are under attack and police are villainized, maybe the police get a little more hesitant about enforcing the law. Maybe they don't go into neighborhoods as often as they used to. Maybe they're a little more cautious when they you know, respond to a report of shots fired. And probably that's having an effect on the policing in America. And that's why you're seeing you know, violent crime numbers go up. So I'm glad to see Democrats now recognize this as a promise to uh, quote the wisest philosopher in the history of the world. Welcome to the party, pal. Um, <laughs> and we will, you know, hopefully good things will come out of this. 
Ongoing riots while Joe Biden gets inoculated would not be a good martini. But uh, let's, uh, let, let's see if he speaks up and, and if he says something that actually resonates with people. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now. And bad might be an exaggeration, but it was certainly an odd speech last night. Uh, I, I certainly felt that uh, the Trump speech, as, as most folks uh, concluded, went on too long. It felt more to me like a State of the Union address than a convention speech. I thought uh, the night built up to it well. Uh, you tweeted out that, you know, it should have just come to a close after you had Alice Johnson telling her story and the gut-wrenching story of uh, Ann Dorn and her husband who was killed trying to protect a store in St. Louis during those riots and uh, the parents of Kayla Muller who was killed by ISIS and so forth. Chris Wallace uh, thought made an interesting point last night in the post-game show on Fox that said, as you read the speech, it kind of leapt off the page. But uh, I don't know whether it was the teleprompter or, or what it was, but uh, Trump at various times kind of seemed to miss his marks. Uh, as I watched a few of the reruns, it, it came across a little better, but uh, it wasn't nearly as tight as the Pence speech, and it didn't have the same energy that a Trump speech normally has. So I don't know what the ultimate uh, result of that is going to be. He obviously pointed out a lot of Biden's weaknesses. And if you listen carefully, he talked about some very distinct policy differences, which I think are important. But it wasn't quite the packing of a punch that we probably expected. No. And look, there are a lot of readers of my blog and readers of National Review and probably listeners of this podcast who wanted to hear Trump gave a great speech last night. I'm afraid he didn't. Uh, you know, it, 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 you can salvage it. And like I said, I, this has overall been a very strong Republican convention. It's kind of, you, know, uh, you know, of all the problems you could have, having three of the speakers earlier in the night just, just hit absolute home runs is really not a bad problem to have, right? You know? um, and so I, I, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but it was a recognition that, boy, you know, officially things kind of kicked off around 830. And just in that, uh, you know, th th that small window, uh, Anne Dorn, you know, just breaking everybody's hearts talking about her husband passing, you know, being killed in the line of duty. Uh, Carl and Marsha Mueller talking about uh, uh, their daughter and ISIS. And, you know, I think like an important message came up every now and then in this convention, just kind of remarkable. Greg, we don't talk about ISIS very much. We don't worry about ISIS very much. And there was a time not that long ago the, the Paris Theater, the, the you know, San Bernardino, Orlando, it would be very hard to picture if I'd said to you, yeah, by August 2020, people are just going to forget about ISIS. It's just not going to be a problem. We're going to have a whole bunch of other problems, <laughs> but we're not going to be worried about ISIS. Um, and, and Alice Johnson, who I've seen at uh, the Coke Network meeting and stuff like that. You know, um, the First Step Act and, and you know, what good, well-thought-out, careful criminal justice reform can do for you. And th this is all great. And then at 10 o'clock, they went to Ivanka Trump. And I'm sorry, none of the Trump kids did a particularly good speech. Uh, you know, Don Jr. wasn't bad. Uh, Ivanka wasn't bad last night. It just is, I'm not surprised the Trump kids think their dad is a terrific president. I'm, I, they, they just surprised, you know, I'm not surprised Mike Pompeo thinks that Donald Trump is doing a terrific job as president. Um, yes, you know, Biden used his kids. But if you're going to bring in the family, you might as well use them for the humanizing stories. It's kind of a weird thing that the Greg, Greg, the most humanizing story we heard out of this entire convention came from Herschel Walker, right? Uh, describing he had Donald Trump in a full suit going on the "It's a Small World" ride at Disneyland. You know, like if you're bringing out the family, tell the funny stories. Show us the side of Trump that we don't get to see every other time before he steps in front of the podium. Don't have him talk policy. 
That's not, you know, anybody can talk policy. You know, you, you presumably, as his child, have a unique, unique insight into what makes Donald Trump tick. And um, while you can say, you know, well, there's nothing particularly wrong with what Ivanka Trump said, it was that it was nothing great. And by the time they got handed over, it was probably around 1025 last night. Between 1020 and 1030, they had the whole uh, coming down the steps with uh, Melania. And, and, you know, there was uh, about 1025, Trump is now speaking. And I know that, you know, usually conventions, they try to have them end at 11 o'clock on Eastern. It is not unusual for them to go over. And it's really not unusual for the nominee's speech to run over. By itself, it's not the problem. 70 minutes is a problem. It was a really long speech. You could have cut two-thirds out, and it would have been a perfectly fine speech. Uh, And the other thing, which, you know, again, for everybody who thinks I'm constantly bashing Trump and all that stuff, look, the the closing it with fireworks that spell out Trump 2020 above the White House, that's about as good as it gets, right? Short of doing like having the Blue Angels dump balloons, (laughs) that's really about as good as it gets. There were reports yesterday that even the protesters on the north side of the White House were like, just stop. They stopped protesting and chanting because the fireworks display was so amazing. It was, it was right up there with what you're used to seeing on the 4th of July. That's a great ending. Why don't you want to do that at 10.55 so everybody sees that before 11 o'clock? Uh, I suppose you can make an argument, oh, this will be good on the West Coast. And Greg, we know how many really deeply competitive states are on the West Coast. Uh, you know, look, I don't know if people were starting to go to bed earlier in Florida and, you know, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, New Hampshire, stuff like that. Look, a long speech, a lot of people catch it through social media or on the news reports the next day. It's not the end of the world, but it's kind of a missed opportunity. And having seen so many good arguments and so many, you know, kind of compelling speeches from other folks in this convention, just feels like they kind of missed that, you know, it wasn't the closing note uh, that, that just nailing it the way you wanted to. Um, and again, I thought it was not also like you could tell, like we, we've seen Trump ad lib. We know what a, you know, Trump speaking off the cuff is like. We've seen Trump stick to the script before. Usually he does this in his State of the Unions. I think his State of the Union speeches are really good. I think it's pretty clear Trump finds his prepared speeches not as interesting as his own riffs, you know. And so what we got last night was apparently a very long speech and he started riffing and kind of inserting his own going, you know, improving here and there towards the end. And it just made it continue and continue and continue. And, you know, there were perfectly fine sections in it. And maybe it'll be fine. It just kind of feels like they could have um, a very good convention, didn't quite stick the landing uh, as I think they probably wanted to. I don't think it'll you know, make a huge difference in the polling numbers. I don't think it'll make, if Trump loses, it's not going to be because his convention speech was too long. But I do think... Um, uh, and we'll, we'll see. If, the, if Trump doesn't get a significant bump out of this week, then I think it's time for them really to be nervous about how things are going to go in November. Be very curious to see what the poll numbers are. Uh, I did see one this morning. I don't know who did it, and I don't know how good their track record is, but it had Trump up to in Michigan. And the latest state polls in Michigan have had Trump struggling to keep it within single digits. So if there's any accuracy to that, uh, it could have been an effective week. But uh, until we see some more concrete numbers in a number of different states. I think uh, we're going to be in a holding pattern to see just what the impact was. But certainly our impression was, uh, for the most part, this, this convention exceeded expectations. Yeah. And uh, let's just make one final note that I, I, I put in today's morning jolt. You know, actually, you look at most of these swing states, you know, Biden's ahead usually. Um, I think if you're the Trump campaign, if you're close in Michigan, you'll take it. 
Um, but these leads are like, you know, four points here, three points there, sometimes up to six to seven. They're, they're high. You know, they're, they're, look, you'd, you'd be happy with those kind of leads in, particularly in those upper Midwestern swing states. But Absolutely. nationally, Biden is up 10 points, 11 points, 12 points. So I decided to check, okay, let's look at these blue states. Let's look here in Virginia. And I looked up in New York, and I haven't checked all of them. I could probably check polling in California, too, and all that stuff. But basically, in Virginia and New York, Biden is currently polling better than Hillary Clinton finished in 2016. So possibly the blue states are turning bluer, which is, you know, bad news for Republicans in Virginia and New York. But if you're Joe Biden, that doesn't really help you. Building up your margin in blue states, you know, you got a bunch of red states you want to flip over to your side. So I think there's something, you know, kind of a, a, an indicator, these, these top line national numbers, people can look at that and say, oh my God, Biden's up 10. Well, this thing's over. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. These swing states are closer. And if they end up getting, you know, if Trump can get any kind of a bump out of this, then we've got a race. Then we've got something competitive and something worth watching all the way to the end. If not, then okay, yeah, maybe this has been, you know, maybe people made up their decision, made their decision on who to vote for a long while ago. Yeah, pure delusion on the Trump side. I think even the president said some point this week that he thought New York was in play. Um, that makes George W. Bush's decision to spend a lot of money in California towards the end of the 2000 campaign look genius compared to that. Uh, spending a dime for Republicans and anything statewide in New York right now is a fool's errand, as, as well as Virginia, probably, unfortunately. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about our crazy awesome martini, Jim. Uh, a lot of times our crazy martini is something that's outrageous or uh, just stupid, but uh, today it's crazy awesome. You and I are not, and we need to stress this, not into video games at all. The last video game I mastered was the original Super Mario Brothers, okay? So, I mean, it's been a while. Um, and so Call of Duty has been out for a while, but they come out with different versions, and this is Call of Duty Cold War Ops. And the scene we're going to take you in is inside the Situation Room, apparently in the early days of the Reagan administration, because Al Haig is still Secretary of State, which is a job he didn't have for very long. And so, Jim, here are the orders for a clandestine mission to take out a Soviet agent named Perseus, courtesy of President Reagan. Gentlemen, you've been given an important task protecting our very way of life from a great evil. There is no higher duty. There is no higher honor. And while few people will know of your struggles, rest assured, the entire free world will benefit. I know you won't fail us. Now, Jim, I have to make a confession. I was wearing my Reagan Bush 84 t-shirt pretty much every night as I, as I <laughs> perused the convention this week. What would it be like to actually be in a situation room and have President Reagan give you the green light for a clandestine op to take out a high-profile Soviet target? I was going to say, I saw this yesterday evening, and I walk into my house, and my older son sees me smiling. I'm like, Dad, why are you smiling? And I said, son... It's okay for you to play video games. Try to limit how much time they play video games. Don't only succeed. And his eyes lit up and I said, let me show you the trailer for <laughs> Call of Duty, Cold War, Special Ops Cold War. And he's probably heard of it, but you know, Call of Duty is usually a pretty realistic, pretty grown up, you know, uh, combat simulator, war game, you know, type thing. And I, you know, he's, he's like, huh? And then, watch, and then he sees Reagan. He's like, ah, oh, okay, this is why dad, you know, is into this. Greg, I don't know about you, I am ready to go out on secret missions that are blatantly illegal 
on orders from President Reagan to defend this country. I, I'm not into video games. I probably will get shot within the first couple seconds. I stink at these things. The last video game I was good at was Civ. I'm much more of a big picture kind of guy. But still, I, you know, the only thing that could make this any better, it was a great scene, and you got to go watch this, folks, because the sound is good, the audio is good, but uh, uh, the, 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 you know, they, they really did a really fantastic you know, CGI photorealism to make it look like Reagan is saying these things. I just think the dialogue was good, Greg. I just feel like it could have been a little better. <laughs> Something a little more on the lines of, like, you know, well, this Perseus character is getting up to my keister, I tell you. I want to take him as fed up with him as I am with Gaddafi and Ortega down there in Central America. I want somebody to go up to him and say, well, you've had it, pal. <laughs> That's my Reagan. You know, I just, so it was very good. It just felt not quite the, the Reagan we're used to seeing and stuff. But yes, I just saw that. I was like, ah. Well, you know, I understand even in the controls, Greg, you press F and it'll trade arms for hostages. That's how <laughs> awesome this game is. Yeah, I don't know if they have Ollie North like walking behind him in the hallway at some point or, or one of those people. But uh, yeah, that was great. And the, the character's name is Adler. So it kind of makes you work a little harder to put yourself in that position since they actually named the character. But I can just imagine you and I sitting there where Al Hag's introducing us and, and Reagan cuts him off and says, I know who they are. Who do you think <laughs> authorized their last mission? So, uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, they say... They're the ones who set up the Disney CTU. <laughs> exactly. You know, they say there's coaches you want to run through a brick wall for. Yeah, there you go, right there. Ronnie, good times. Jim, quite a week. Convention season is over. We'll see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. We would love to have you give us a five-star review and a, a, we would love to have you give us a five-star rating and a kind review. Reminder, you can also get us on those home devices. You just have to say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.